Okay, we're good. Where's okay. Cass? So they're both fast asleep on the bed upstairs to get their saving together. So it's the time of year when all the new doctors start. And whilst medical school has hopefully taught you everything you need to know to be a doctor, unfortunately, you've probably not been taught anything about how to manage your finances. And you could already be making some expensive financial mistakes. You might not be aware that you can reduce the cost by up to 40% of those super expensive GMC fees, Royal College fees, and some of the other fees that you have to pay. And if you don't claim these yourself, you're most likely overpaying tax, effectively making charitable donations to HMRC, which is never good. You might be staring at the various tax codes and numbers on your payslip and wondering what they all mean. You might not know the vital financial documents and the pension documents that you need to get and keep safe. You might not know the difference between good debt and bad debt. And even worse, you might be about to spend £139,000 on hospital food. And it's totally fine that you don't know that because like I said, no one's probably ever taught you this. But today, we're gonna to try and teach you all of that to get your finances started off on the right track at the start of your career. So it's gonna be more of a high level summary today and the pace is gonna be pretty fast, but if you wanna take the pace a bit slower and get a bit more detail, it's all covered in our free ebook, which is at medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash ebook. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists, and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So I'm here with my Medics Money co-founder, Dr. Ed Cantello. Hi, mate. Yeah. Hi, Tommy. How's it going? It's going well. And we have done this episode very similar before, almost two years ago now, episode five. And it's been one of our most popular episodes. Doesn't time fly? Yeah, it does. So, you know, the reason why I think that episode is really popular is because although we're focusing this more on the new doctors and welcome to the profession, everyone who's joining us, it really applies to all doctors. And like I said, no one teaches us this stuff. So, yeah, I think that's why it's really popular. And hopefully this episode will be just as popular. And if it is useful to you, sharing it with your friends really helps us. We're all in this together and we can all help each other. But we do need you to keep telling your friends. I think last time we recorded it on episode five, we probably had about 200 podcast downloads. And we've just gone over 320,000. Nice. And we've also changed the location as well, which is quite nice from the cold, horrible garage, no offense, to right now in my living room. Yeah much better. One thing that hasn't changed is you are still a doc. So for those who don't know, you were a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor for nine years at PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers in London. Yep. You swapped your office on the Strand for my cold, dark garage full of sweaty wetsuits and surfboards. And last time we spoke, you were still claiming that you didn't regret that decision. Can you give us an update? Yeah, so still not regretting making that decision to change from being a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor in London to now being a salary GP down in Bognor Regis. You know, no regrets at all. I do kind of look a little bit at the pay rise that PwC people have just got, which is almost matching inflation at 9%. And I kind of get a bit sad that mine won't be anywhere near that. But on the whole, yeah, still happy that I'm a doctor. I think that's important as well, because, you know, PwC, chartered tax advisor, chartered accountant, dream graduate job for a lot of people but everyone's different everyone has different preferences and likes and for you medicine is still the best option and you're still enjoying it yeah. because there is a lot of negativity out there i think being a doctor is as hard now as it's ever been for various reasons so i think it's important to go through that and yeah the pay rise at pwc have you noticed a narrative that if a private company needs to give a pay rise is to attract and retain talent you know so fair enough 10 percent rise for pwc your former colleagues but in the public sector any sort of pay rise is inflationary and that's why most junior doctors are going to get two percent this year which is a yeah. massive real terms pay cut yeah it's awful it's really not going to cover the cost of living increases that we're all facing when it's what inflation is 9.4 percent it's just appalling yeah but private sector needs to attract and retain talent, so it's fine to give a pay rise. But public sector, sorry, can't do it. Inflationary. Maybe they don't want to attract and retain talent. Okay, it's been a while for you. It's been a long while for me, but memories of your F1? Yeah, so very good memories of my F1 in the sense that I learned a lot. It was very scary before starting. I worked at the Royal Surrey in Guildford, which is, a, I personally think, a great hospital. I was very glad to be there. The other F1s were brilliant, and I learned a huge amount. As I was 
quite petrified beforehand, especially as the F1s in Guildford do night shifts and look after the medical or surgical wards. So I wasn't relishing that. And I was also appalling at doing cannulas when I started. But, you know, it was really good. You learn loads, you feel part of a team, people know your name. And, of course, you know, you start getting paid, which is always a bonus. Yeah, definitely. It's been 14 years since I was an F1. <clears throat> You're still younger than me, though. Yeah, that makes me feel a bit better. Still younger than you, but definitely <laughs> gray hairs. not young. And my grey hairs are there. You just haven't looked close enough. You still have a fox look, mate. It's looking strong oh, for you. Very good. Let's go for a look. But yeah, similar memories. I did my F1 in Jersey in the Channel Islands for reasons basically related to the fact that I came from working class background, had a massive amount of debt. And Jersey, as you obviously you're aware, has a very favourable tax jurisdiction. We also got really subsidized accommodation. So I could just like minimize my expenses, maximize my income and use that to pay down some really horrible credit card debts. And I also owed my mum some money, which was a, probably the worst debt of all for me because five grand was a lot of money for her. So yeah, it's been so long. I can't really remember anything other than it was pretty fast paced and quite hard, but overall very positive memories. But one thing that we know doesn't happen in medical school or F1 is any kind of financial education. And this is really, really important. And even more so arguably at the moment, because as Ed alluded to, our pay is going down massively in real terms. We are being paid less. The work is definitely not getting any easier in my opinion. And so it's about maximizing everything you've got. So we're gonna give you 10 financial tips today. We're gonna to go quite fast, we're going high level, but remember, if you want detail, get on the ebook and have a look around on some other podcasts that we've done. And I'll try to put all of those links in the show notes below. So hopefully that will help you. So my tip one is to get some financial education. And you are gonna spend, or you've already spent, hours and thousands of pounds on your medical education, but how much financial education have you had? Do you understand your tax code and your pay slip? Do you know the difference between good and bad debt? Do you know those checks your pensions need? If not, you've come to the right place because good financial management could save you thousands of pounds over your career. And it's not gonna happen automatically. Unfortunately, you do need to do these things yourself and you do need to be proactive about it. And really what we're talking about is, you know, the difference that this can make. It could be the difference between retiring when you want to and not when the government tells you that you can retire. It could be the difference between living a comfortable life without too many money worries or a life feeling like you're just living paycheck to paycheck and you haven't got a handle on your finances and without any real idea about where your money goes or even worse, why your credit card bill is creeping up despite you trying to pay it down. And... Another thing that I think is unfortunately, uh, we've alluded to it already, but I think it's important at this stage to realize that in the last 10 years, doctors have been subject to an unprecedented real terms pay cut. So the BMA figures, the latest ones that I've seen are saying a 22% pay cut in real terms for some junior doctors. And I think the point here is just to educate yourself about this. There's lots going on. The BMA are doing something about it. On episode 104, we had doctors vote on as well. So it's really important to realize what's happening, put the, the wider context and inflation is a really big problem. So junior doctors, as I said, are going to get a 2% pay rise next year. Inflation is currently 9.4%. 9.4%. They're predicting at least 11, maybe 13%. So if your pay rise is 2%, and you know inflation is 9.4 percent that is a 7.4 percent pay cut I never in real do. terms in real terms yeah. exactly and in real terms is the key and if you're thinking oh don't worry when i become a consultant or gp or whatever things will get better and some consultants have had up to a 30 percent real times pay cut in the last 10 years so get yourself educated about the finances it can make a massive difference to your finances but you've got to do it and we have everything that you need to do that at minix money yeah, absolutely. And just to say, you know, we're not trying to kind of scare anyone or, you know, make anyone worry about their finances. It's all about trying to say to people, look, you know, because there is this sort of real terms pay cut, you know, here are some things you can do to actually maximize your income, minimize your expenditure and get those finances looking good. Okay, definitely. And tip two, now this may seem really, really obvious. Okay, but for all you guys starting off as F1s and actually as well, any current doctors who aren't doing this, you know, it's really crucial for you to keep all the documents that you receive regarding your pay, regarding tax, okay? It's easy to get into bad habits and not to do this, but you know, please do keep every pay slip, every P45 and every P60 that you receive from your employers, because these are vital to check what income you're receiving, what tax, pension, and national insurance you're paying, and also what your tax code is doing. And we're gonna go into tax codes a bit later on, 
Okay. Many of you will know, perhaps from reading our blogs, listening to podcasts, or even just sort of general knowledge, that our tax year in the UK, it starts on the 6th of April and it ends on the 5th of April the following year. Okay. So whoever is your employer on the 5th of April has to give you what's called a Form P60 in May. And they also send that to HMRC as well. And that P60 is a really important document for tax purposes because it gives you a summary of your total income in the tax year. That is from 6th of April to the 5th of April. The total income tax you paid, how much national insurance you contributed, how much of your student loan you paid off. Okay, so it's a really important document to keep. Your P45, just for interest, is provided to you every time you leave a job. Okay, so again, a copy of that will go to you, that will go to HMRC, and also to your new employer, who can then use that information to update your tax position within the tax year. Okay, so also pay slips as well. It's really important to keep those if you can. You'll really thank yourself if you do. When Tommy and I were F1s, all the pay slips were on paper. We'd get piles of them in the doctor's mess, which nobody would ever take home. Nowadays, most things are sent electronically or via the electronic staff record or ESR. So every time you get a new document in there, just do yourself a favor, just download it, keep it somewhere safe, okay? Also on the ESR, you should be able to find your total reward statement, which will give you your pensionable earning statement showing the current value of your pensionable earnings and your pension earned each year. Okay, so every time you see one of those on your ESR, save it somewhere on your laptop, so keep it somewhere safe. You know, you may not need these documents now, but really, honestly, you will do one day, and they're really important, okay? So just do yourself a favor and keep all those documents safe. That total award statement as well, especially important. That could be the only permanent record you have of your pension. And as Ed said, get it every year because it updates every year. So you need each year's copy. And I think sometimes if you move trust, you lose access to your previous ESR. Yeah, I understand that as well. And also if like me, you were a GB trainee employed by the hospital and then you become a GP, all those documents, all the access just completely disappears. So just bear that in mind for you potential GPs out there. Okay, now tip three is for me again is to set up what's called a personal tax account, okay? Now, every single taxpayer can set up a personal tax account. And if you haven't set one up, then we would thoroughly recommend setting one up as soon as possible. A lot of people who listen to our podcast already will know there's someone I regularly talk about and I keep banging on about it and I'm gonna keep going on about it until every doctor set one up because it's so important, okay? That personal tax account tells you the information that HMRC have about you for example, in terms of your expected income, what job or jobs they think you're working. And if you've looked before, even if only briefly, HMRC may decide that you have two jobs and think you owe more tax than you do. I remember one of my best friends, he did a locum shift somewhere and HMRC thought he had two jobs and was getting a combined salary of something outrageous like £190,000, which is nowhere near what he was getting at all, like literally nowhere near. And hence they gave him a massive tax bill. So, and it was all because they decided that he worked two full-time jobs. The personal tax account also includes an estimate of what HMRC think your income tax will be, what your tax code is currently, what your national insurance is. So there's loads of information on there all about what HMRC think is going on with your tax situation. And I guarantee at least somewhere that will be wrong. Okay, so just set one up and check it out. Work out what they've got. Work out what's right, what's wrong. Okay, and as I say, it will include things like your tax code, which we'll come on to, and also how to make a tax rebate claim as well, which again we'll come on to. Yeah. I don't like to praise HMRC in front of a chartered accountant, but I think the personal tax account is genuinely really useful. They're constantly improving it and updating it, which means we have to update our guide all the time, but that's fine. Ed's on top of that, so don't worry. And the other thing is it allows you to do it online because doctors often work long, irregular hours and phoning HMRC probably more painful than being on hold at the hospital switchboard and they only work you know normal working hours of like nine to five or something so a little tip for me is if you're on twitter there's a hmrc help on twitter so obviously don't tweet them your personal details but they are actually really responsive on there as well so but personal tax account love it Tip four is me, and this is don't spend £139,000 on lunch. So what is this about? The point I'm trying to make here is that you might think now that you've become a doctor, you'll be driving a Porsche and buying a mansion in Chelsea. The reality, as we've already alluded to, is that the wages as an F1 are, you know, low and getting lower all the time because of inflation. So you need to avoid wasting money on things that you don't need. And I just wanted to show you a small example of how small amounts of spending add up over time. And really what this is about is just trying to establish good financial habits early in your career. If you can establish good financial habits really early in your career, I mean, lots of doctors leave it until the end of their career to even think about some of this stuff. But if you can get on it early, 
you are going to be absolutely fine. And just to reiterate what Ed said, maybe I got a bit excitable at the start there. You know, things are still okay in terms of we're not trying to doom and gloom this, but we're just trying to be realistic. So in our ebook, which I mentioned, medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash ebook, we used a real example of a cardiology registrar who was doing their PhD and life was hectic and they didn't have time to make lunch every day for themselves to take. So they were spending nine pounds a day in the hospital canteen, okay? And over the course of their career, that would add up to 59,760 pounds, which is 166 pounds saving a month multiplied by 12 months, multiplied by a 30 year career. And so 59,000 pounds on hospital food is a lot of money, okay? But actually, if you could take that 59,760 pounds and put it into a low cost, well diversified investment portfolio, and we've got loads of information about this elsewhere on investing, not gonna get into that today. Assuming a 5% return, that 59,000 pounds, 760 would grow to 139,680 pounds, which is a tremendous amount of money. So small amounts of spending add up massively. And I don't know about you, but lunch at the hospital, not worth £139,000. No, definitely nowhere near that. You know, in Guildford actually wasn't too bad, but still nowhere near worth that. Yeah, St. Richard's Canteen, I've been there for like a fry up and a coffee after a really tough night shift, and it does taste disproportionately good, but not £139,000 worth. No. And you might be wondering why we didn't cut the spending from £9 to zero a day, because we cut it from £9 to £1.50 a day. And that was because Ed pointed out that it was inconceivable that any human being would not be allowed to buy one cup of coffee per day. Yeah, it's, it's so important in my mind to get a coffee every day. <laughs> so I refuse to let them go down to zero. <laughs> but hopefully that just shows you that A, Ed really loves coffee. I mean, I like coffee too, but not as much as Ed. <laughs> And B, small amounts of spending add up to massive amounts over your career. And if you can just develop these good spending habits early on in your career, you know, that could be the difference between retiring at 68 and retiring at 60. And you might be thinking retirement's a long way off, but it comes into sharp focus pretty soon, especially when you've got as much gray hair as me and Ed do. Although you've got more. Yeah, I do. It's true. <laughs> I'm coming that way. Okay, now we're on to tip five, which is understand your debt, specifically good debt versus bad debt. So debt is something that unfortunately I know a lot about because when I graduated, I had 85,000 pounds worth of debt. And unfortunately these days, that is not really a standout amount. But back then, 14 years ago, no one had that amount. And my debt was not just student loan. It was student loan, bank loan, overdrafts are maxed, obviously, credit card and a loan to my mum as well. And you need to start tackling this debt and paying down the debt in a logical way. So a logical way is to work out what is good debt, what is bad debt. So if you're not aware, good debt is broadly defined as low interest rate debt that is used to buy assets that historically have appreciated in value. So for example, a mortgage, which is low interest rate, although going up all the time at the moment in interest rate, is <laughs> used to buy a house, which is an asset that has historically increased in value. So I think most people would agree a good debt is a mortgage. What about bad debt? So bad debt is high interest rate debt that is used to buy assets that depreciate in value. So a store card with an extortionate interest rate that's used to buy clothes that depreciate in value is an example of bad debt. A car loan, in my opinion, is an example of bad debt. So you need to try to avoid bad debt. And if you have lots of bad debts like credit cards, and you might well do, been there, done that, you need to think about paying it off as soon as possible. So pay off the bad debts first, and the good debts, you can just wait, and I'll talk a bit about that in more detail. And one way which you can pay down bad debt is to use something called pay yourself first. And I know that you're a fan of pay yourself first, mate. And I use pay myself first to pay off my 85 grand of debt. And it's really, really simple. Basically, when your wages come in, you instantly take off the amount that you need to start repaying your debt. And then what's left is your spending for the month. And then you basically just learn to live on a less amount of money, basically, safe in the knowledge that you're paying down your debt. 
I don't know, you, you like pay yourself first as well, don't you? Yeah, definitely. And I have to be really honest, I didn't really utilise it too much until we started Medics Money and we started talking about it. And I thought, actually, it's a really good idea. So I, yeah, I definitely use it now. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I'll say about pay yourself first is I am now debt free, apart from my mortgage, which I'm really proud about because it was hard to do. But I still use pay myself first. But instead of using the money that I siphon off to pay down debts like credit cards, I use it to invest. So I'm literally investing automatically every month. And, you know, it doesn't impact. I've just become used to living on the smaller amount that eventually makes its way to my current account. So I love Pay Yourself First. I think it works for your whole financial life, whether you're paying down student debt or trying to build up investment portfolio. And it is really good. So yeah, I'm apprehensive about this next bit because the next natural question is, what about student loan debt? And student loans are ridiculously complicated. I'm not sure if, I mean, we're always going on about how complex the pension is, and that's definitely complicated, but I'm not sure if people actually understand how complex student loans are these days. And this could be like a whole podcast series, so I'm gonna go high level on this and hopefully keep it accessible. But I just wanted to make a few points that student loans are unlike most other loans because you only repay them if you earn above certain thresholds. So at the time of recording, if you live in England, you only repay your student loan if you earn more than £27,295 a year. And then what happens is you just pay 9% of your earnings above that £27,295 threshold. And I believe the threshold's currently 25000 in Scotland for all of our Scottish listeners. And if you are in Scotland, check out our Scottish Pacific podcast because that was a really good one. So that's the first difference. You only repay them if they go above certain thresholds and you only repay 9% of your earnings above that threshold. I say only, I mean, it's a massive amount, isn't it? But anyway, if you stop working or lose your job or get ill, etc., you just stop paying off your loans. So you don't have to worry about that until you get back on your feet and get back into work. The interest that you pay varies according to your income. And the interest rate doesn't really affect the repayments, but it does obviously affect the size of the debt. And then this is a massive one really, which is why they're really different to most normal loans. I wish most normal loans were like this. After a certain period, your student loan debt is wiped. It just disappears. And it depends what plan of student loan you're on, but typically this is 25 or 30 years uh, term or age 65. So it depends what sort of student loan you have. So is wiped. And so that's a massive difference from a normal debt and is really, really complex, too many variables. But I just wanted to make a few small points. And that is a lot of the guru advice is that the size of the debt is irrelevant because most of us won't pay off the debt before it's wiped. And I think that can be a hard concept to get your head around because you only repay 9% of your earnings above the threshold that I mentioned. You're not repaying 9% of the debt, you're paying 9% of your earnings. And so for most of us, we'll never pay it off. So let's run an example. If you've got 50,000 pounds student loan debt and you earn 32,295 pounds, you pay 9% of your income above that. So 450 pounds a year. If you have £100,000 debt and you earn the same, £32,295, you pay 9% of your income above that, so £450 a year. I'm laboring this point a bit here, but I think it's important. So if you have a million pound debt and you earn £32,295, you still just pay 9% of your income above that threshold, so £450 a year. So a lot of the guru advice is the size of the debt doesn't matter. And for a lot of people, that is no doubt true because you're never gonna pay it off and then it gets wiped. And it is effectively, really, a 9% graduate tax on your earnings over the threshold until the loan gets written off. But we've done some modeling on the student loan. It's too complicated for a podcast. It's going to be maybe in the book. But the problem for doctors is that, well, great problem to have, is that later on in your career, you'll be earning a reasonable amount. And this puts you right in the sweet spot for paying a really large amount of your student loan. And we've run a few scenarios on this. It's impossible to model really because there's too many variables, but you just need to be aware that if you are thinking about making extra payments, and this is definitely not financial advice, do your own research. But if you are thinking, oh, I'm gonna pay it off early, it could actually end up costing you more by trying to overpay it. Because if you don't clear the debt by the end with your overpayments, then the overpayments are just wasted. So just to reiterate, for most of us, we won't pay the debt off, it's a 9% tax on your earnings effectively above £27,295. The size of the debt is largely irrelevant for most of us. And if you are thinking about overpaying or paying it off, have a look 
at closely at it because it doesn't always make sense. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I just want to reiterate what Tommy said that student loans are really complicated now. So I was on the the plan one student loan. So before, I think I was the last year, when I went to medical school, I was the last year before it went to the... 2012, plan, plan September, two. went plan two. Yeah, so. so I started in 2011 medical school. And yeah, I think the, the student loan is so much more complicated now. But uh, as Tommy said, it's, you know, quite harsh. It's sort of a 9% graduate tax really but also as you said you know just check out your own numbers and what's going on there because it really matters everyone's personal circumstances really matter here yeah definitely and I think you know your headline debt number could be massive but really what you're saying is you're just going to be paying a nine percent of your earnings over the threshold until the debt is wiped which is not great but don't be put off by the debt number I mean yeah I think it's just very complicated so just thinking about logical things and bringing it back to use my own example as I said I had when I graduated a credit card high interest, bad debt. I had a loan to my mum, interest rate 0%, but five grand to my mum was a tremendous amount of money. So even though the interest rate was 0%, I paid that one off as well as a priority. I had a bank loan, which was called a professional studies loan. It's basically when you blew through your student loan and you ran out of money, you could get one of these. I'm not sure if they still exist. But anyway, that had an interest rate of an average of 1.25%, which was amazing debt. So I paid off the minimum amounts there and used the other money to start investing and buy a house, etc., And I have my student loan, which as Ed alluded to, was a plan one student loan, where I paid an average of 1.1% to loan nearly 30 grand, I think it was, unsecured loan. I mean, it was really nice. It was, if you're wondering, is plan two loan good debt? I'm not sure, but I'll tell you, plan one loan was amazing debt, you know, it's the best. And so I paid that off really slowly. So prioritize paying off dad debts. Good debts are kind of inevitable and not necessarily a bad thing. And, yeah student loans complicated definitely very complicated yeah hopefully that was clear yeah i think so you know just to say it's just a complicated area so we've made it as clear as we can guys and but yeah just have a look at your own numbers definitely So I think uh, we're going to take a little kind of pause for some tips now for something that I do every now and again on the podcast that Tommy and I did together, which is to give a bit of what we call tax trivia. So when we first ever did a podcast several years ago in Tommy's garage, we talked about basically some tax expenses for doctors and uh, tax rebates. And I mentioned about why the tax year in the UK is that rather strange 6th of April to the 5th of April. And Tommy didn't know why that was the case and was very, you know, interested in that. We talked about this idea of doing some tax trivia every now and again. So wherever I can, I try and throw in some tax trivia. And, you know, a bit niche, a bit random, but everyone seems to like it. So, you know, here's a bit more. Now, Tommy mentioned that a few years ago we did the same sort of thing. And then we talked about a very important VAT tax case, which related to the Jaffa Cakes. So I thought I'd just reiterate that one again, but also give it a little bit of an update to it. So... VAT, as I'm sure you'll all be aware, is a, the sales tax that the government makes businesses add on to various products, usually at 20%, but not always. So if you were to go and pay, let's say, £100 for some furniture before VAT, the company would apply VAT at 20%. So the actual cost to you, the consumer, is £120. And there are some other rates out there. So for example, 0% is applied to children's clothes and newspapers, whereas 5% is applied on children's car seats, just as an example. And some things out there are completely exempt from VAT, such as insurance. And the rules are complicated, and the podcast isn't about VAT, which I'm sure you'll be very grateful for. But as I say, there is a tax case that gets accountants like me very excited. And so for those of you who want to know about it, I'm going to talk to you about it. So the VAT rules state, okay, that if you sell biscuits, which I really appreciate none of you guys listening would do, but if you sell biscuits, then you have to add 20% VAT to your prices. However, if you sell cakes, then you charge VAT at 0%. So there's no increase in price. And there was a huge court case in 1991 between Her Majesty's Excise and Customs, which of course later on became part of HMRC, and McVitie's regarding whether Jaffa cakes were biscuits or cakes. And of course it impacted on McVitie's because it was the difference between having to increase their prices by 20% or 17.5% as it was at the time on their Jaffa cakes and therefore putting off some customers or not raising their prices at all. And as part of this strange court case, McVitie's actually even brought in a giant Jaffa cake to show that it was a cake and not a biscuit. And in the end, they won their claim. So Jaffa cakes are indeed cakes, they're not biscuits, and no VAT is implied, which you know, makes them a pretty cost-effective snack if you're doing a revision. Now, in April 2022, just to update that case, there was actually a new court case in front of the VAT judges, and this time from a company called Glambia Milk 
who make 36 different types of flapjacks. I've no idea how there can be so many different types, but apparently that's what they do. And it was argued by Aglambia that flapjacks are cakes and therefore zero VAT should be applied. And of course, again, it's all about business, isn't it really? If they had to apply 20% price increase to their flapjacks, then fewer people will buy them. So it's quite important to them. HMRC, of course, you won't be surprised here, argued that they weren't cakes and therefore 20% VAT should apply. And among other reasons, HMRC argued that flapjacks aren't cakes because they are not eaten for afternoon tea, which just sounds like such a British thing to say to start talking about afternoon tea. I don't know who actually has afternoon tea these days, but still. The judges, as part of their job, tried several of the different flapjacks, you know, which sounds like a great job. I'd love to have that job. And in the end, they decided that they were not cakes as they are too dense and chewy and not the typical texture of a cake. So there you go. So Jaffa cakes, as the name would now apply, are indeed cakes in the eyes of the law, but flapjacks aren't. I just don't know what to say. If you're wondering what is that to do with your finances as a doctor, I'd say almost nothing to do with that. But it's something random that we started and people seem to like it. I think it shows the depth of your tax knowledge. Most of it really helpful and helps our colleagues to pay the right amount of tax and some of it not so helpful. And I'll leave the listeners to decide which category that piece of tax trivia. I mean, I guess if you want the most tax efficient Biscuit or snack, let's call it a snack. Snack, Jaffa cake. Yeah, yeah. But not flapjack. No, cakes, not flapjacks. That's the golden rule here. That's the top tip. <laughs> also, we're not sponsored by Jaffa cakes and have no affiliation. You know, my dad doesn't own them or anything. I'd like uh, to be sponsored by them. I know. Yeah, that'd be nice. So, they're good. <laughs> we're available for sponsorship <laughs> yeah. of Jaffa cakes. Get involved. <laughs> yeah, wow. A tax trivia. Who knows why? I'm slightly reluctant to do this, but back on topic, tip six is know your rights. Okay, so being a doctor might be the first job you've ever had. And if so, congratulations, it's the best job I've ever had. Ed's still claiming it's the best job he's ever had. Do you think they get, they wouldn't get free Jaffa cakes at PwC, would they? <clears throat> no, we used to get the financial times for free, but that's not quite the same thing. Because like, you know, NHS kits, coffee and tea, and like you're looking at a rich tea maximum. Yeah. Or yeah. one of those digestives with no chocolate on. That's it. No free snacks at BBC. <laughs> okay. So yeah, tip six is know your rights. And again, there's something that's not taught very well. And, you know, with the NHS being historically short staffed, there's rotor gaps everywhere. And we see some absolutely shocking treatment from some NHS HR departments. And if you don't know what your rights are as an employee, and then how would you know that that is a shocking way to be treated? And I think Jeremy Hunt actually announced this week that the NHS has the greatest workforce crisis in NHS history. And that just means that there's going to be more gaps in the rotor, more pressure on everybody. And it's really important to, you know, protect yourself and know your rights. I mean, you've got to wonder who was in charge of the health service as the longest serving health secretary in history when the seeds of this greatest workforce crisis in the NHS was sown. Yeah, wonder who that could be. I think it was someone, you have to be careful how you say his name, but Jeremy Hunt. Yes, indeed. He's yeah. obviously forgotten that. The- it's just hilarious watching him criticise his own work, basically. Yeah. Anyway, he did really well in the uh, leadership election and probably we won't ever see him again. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so how can you get to know your rights? I think the basic thing that you could do is get your contract. And I always used to request my contract at the start of every job, as you should. And sometimes people look to me like I was some kind of rebel or criminal. But it's just normal. Like, I'm sure Ed didn't start his job at PwC without getting a contract. And if he didn't request one, PwC would be like, well, why haven't you requested a contract? But for doctors, it seems when we do request a contract, it's like, well, why? Why do you want it? And then if you're looking at that contract thinking, wow, what does all this mean? The BMA offer something called a contract checking service and not sponsored by Jaffa Cakes, not sponsored by the BMA. I'd probably rather be sponsored by Jaffa Cakes. If we got free Jaffa Cakes, then you know what? Yes, please. I would definitely go for that. Okay, anyway, but we're not sponsored by the BMA, but they do have this contract checking service that I've heard is really useful. And I think you've got a few people that have used it. Yeah, I've, I've heard really good things about it, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, they are our union, for better or for worse, the BMA, and they do have some great stuff about how to, well, you know, what you can expect from your employer. So have a look at that. And normally they do some kind of free thing for F1s. I'm not sure if they're doing it anymore, but you can join for free until a certain time. And you should also check out what they're doing on pay. So it's your choice whether to join them, but they do have some useful stuff and definitely not sponsored by them. Tip seven, mate. 
Yep, tip seven. So tip seven is to check your tax code, okay? So a phrase that I've used quite a few times in this podcast already, but not actually explained. So linked to understanding your pay, specifically your net pay, is your tax code. And this is another favorite subject for us at Medics Money, okay? So you can find loads of information on tax codes on our website. I think it's in the ebook as well. And so I'm just going to keep it brief here, okay, guys? So your tax code, that's calculated by HMRC and issued to the trust that employs you. Okay, and it tells the trust what allowances you are entitled to in a code format so that they won't know any exact details about your tax affairs. So it's just, you know, just a number and a letter. And they can then use that code to calculate how much income tax to deduct from your monthly salary. Okay, and this is the way the government collects tax from you. So if your tax code is wrong, your tax bill is wrong, and then it's easy to overpay tax or potentially underpay tax, you know, it's not a one-way street, but usually to overpay tax. And it's important to get your pay slips, get your P60s, the documents we mentioned before, and check what your tax code is. You can also find your tax code on your personal tax account, which will also give you details of what the tax code is broken up into, okay, which is also very useful. And if it's wrong, then you can use your PTA, or sorry, your personal tax account, to tell HMRC that it's wrong. Now, at the moment, when you become an FI1, your tax code is likely to be correct, okay? But the big issue is that the tax year will end on the 5th of April, and many of you will then switch to a new job in August to a different trust for your F2 year. So I did that when I was at the Royal Surrey in Guildford for my FI1, and then I was moved to St. Richard's in Chichester for my FI2. And if it is the case that you move trusts in August, then you will find that you'll get a payslip from your F1 employee for the time you worked in August up until that first Wednesday. And then for the rest of August, up to whenever your payday is, you'll get a second payslip from your FY2 employee. So what is the most likely tax result with that? Well, HMRC, weirdly, will often think that you've got two jobs in August and then will apply the wrong tax code to your FY2 pay to ensure that you're not underpaying tax, because that's their big fear. Their big fear is they're not gonna get enough money off you. And all your tax fee release will go towards your FY1 job, which will have stopped, but HMRC don't know that, and none towards your FY2 pay. So you're gonna overpay tax, okay? So just as an example, I, as I said, was F1 in Guildford. I think at that point, the first Wednesday in August was on the 6th of August. I mean, it may be wrong, but it doesn't really matter for this purpose. So I got a payslip from Guildford from whatever the last payday was up until the 6th of August. And then for Chichester, I got it from the 6th of August up until, you know, whatever day payday was. Okay. So I had two payslips in August, HMIC for I had two jobs. And my net pay for my FY2 job absolutely plummeted, okay? And, you know, you may fall into this position yourself in August. If you do, if you find that for some reason your FY2 pay and the first pay slip has massively gone down, definitely check your tax code. It's something you can do yourself, okay? You don't need an accountant to help with this, okay? You can use our resources on our website to check your tax code and to change it if you need to, okay? But it's a great habit to get into. Just keep checking your tax code, find out what it is, why it's that, and if it changes... Make sure you understand why, okay? The payslip, by the way, is also quite confusing. You know, since the new contract arrived, it's only in England anyway, with the new contract, which isn't really that new now, I guess. But it is more complicated. Lots of entries on it. You can find a helpful article explaining the many components of it on our website. But there are other websites out there, like the BMA, which also have payslip explainers. So just, you know, make sure you understand that as well, okay? Because it is quite confusing. Are you sure that you're not sponsored by the BMA? No, no, not at all, you know. <laughs> okay. If, if anyone wants to give me some money, that's fine, but no sponsorship uh, deals. I think any good quality advice we're happy to signpost to. If you Google doctor's payslip, the first hit is the BMA one. And that explains like what all the weird 2016 contract, a new contract as you refer to it, all of that means. It literally doesn't really mention tax codes or anything like that. But our one doesn't really mention all the weird and wonderful things about the contract, but well, it does actually, but it also goes in detail about the tax. So I reckon if you combine those two resources, obviously favoring ours, because yeah, you'll be pretty sweet. That's okay. It. Yeah, cool. And now, okay, so tip eight is to make sure that you claim a doctor's tax rebate, okay, to save yourself a lot of money, which again is another favorite topic of ours at Medics Money and again we have lots of resources on claiming professional expenses for doctors okay because a lot of the professional expenses that we incur as doctors are deductible against our earnings which will then reduce our income tax bills and these include our GMC fees 
any medical indemnity insurance, fees paid to the BMA, if you pay to the BMA, and later on in life, payments to the Royal Colleges, which include those all expensive exam fees, okay? And just like in tip two, we would recommend when you do make payments to these bodies, keep all receipts of any expenses that you've incurred, okay? So when the GMC, for example, email you with a receipt for how much you paid them, you know, make sure you keep it somewhere safe and somewhere easily findable, okay? Now, Professional expenses, they can be claimed each tax year. So as an FY1, for example, if you start in August, the first tax that will be relevant to you will run from the date you started in August up to the 5th of April the following year. So August 2022 to the 5th of April 2023 or the 2022 stroke 2023 tax year. Okay. And by claiming a tax deduction for your professional expenses, you should be able to get probably in your FY1 year, a 20% deduction or 21% of the cost back. Going forward, probably going to be 40% of the cost back. It could actually go up to 45% of the cost back if you earn more than £150,000, but I'm going to assume for the minute that that's not going to apply to many of you, especially not in your FY1 year. Unless HMRC mess up your tax code, yeah. and they'll think you're like <laughs> three jobs with an F1. Mind you, three jobs at F1 still wouldn't be anywhere near 150. No, no, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. When the time comes for you to make a claim, okay, we would recommend waiting until after the tax year ends, getting all the information for all the fees you paid, and then you can download a free handy step-by-step guide on our website, okay? So at the top of our website, it says, you know, download our free guide. You can just do that yourselves for free, okay? You can also listen to our tax deductible expenses podcast for more information as well. But just bear in mind, guys, that, you know, a lot of people get worried about making this claim and doing this and feel they need an accountant. You don't. You can do it yourself. We've done it all for you in this guide. Just follow the guides and you'll be fine, okay? Over 35,000 downloads of that guide now. And it's probably one of the most popular things that we do. And it's just really easy, step-by-step. It tells you how to get your receipts, what you can claim, what you can't claim. Can you, if you pay us something, part of one tax year and part of the next tax year, which tax year do you claim it in? So really good resource for you there. Just a quick technical point. You need your GMC number to get the guide. And the reason for that is that the information in there is specific to doctors and we never want to give out misinformation to anyone. So you need your GMC number. The GMC number take a little while to update the database when all the new doctors join. So if you're a new doctor and you can't download the guide because your GMC number isn't working, don't panic. You don't really need it for a year because that's when you can make the claim. And instead, just download the ebook and start working away on all the other stuff in there because there's plenty to be getting on with in the ebook. But that's just something I'd say. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, on that note, so we do get emails from people saying, you know, my GMC number isn't working. Can you send me the guide? And we, you know, we can do that, but actually you're pretty worth off just holding fire to GMC number works and actually not downloading it until you need it anyway, because we're constantly having to update it as HMRC changed the layouts and the rules and so on. So better to wait for your GMC number and download it when you need it rather than, you know, try and get it now, even though yep. it's great to be ahead of the game. You just don't need it right now. Yeah, and I got everyone a bit excited by saying you need to start sorting out your finances immediately. For your first couple of months as an F1, I would just focus on doing the job, surviving, and then start to think about some of this stuff. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's good to be ahead of the game. Get the ebook, definitely, but some things can wait. Okay, tip nine is protect your most valuable asset. So... You've worked incredibly hard to become a doctor, and that is an incredibly valuable asset that you need to protect. Now, what do I mean by that? So unless you could afford your bills and all your other outgoings and expenses without your salary, you need to consider protecting your income. So I don't insure my phone. I don't insure my washing machine. I don't even insure my beloved surfboards, but I do insure mine and my family's future. And I sincerely hope this doesn't happen to any of you, but we are unfortunately regularly contacted by very junior doctors who unfortunately do get ill. So if you get ill, you need a solid backup plan, okay? So the first thing to think about is what sick pay does the NHS give you because you're employed by the NHS and that means you get access to the sick pay that the NHS gives you. And the sick pay in the NHS works in general, and you've got to, again, check the terms of your contract, but in general terms, the first five years, the sick pay slowly accrues. So in your very first year as a doctor typically you'd get one month full pay if you got ill and two months half pay okay 
and then it accrues over time. And then after five years as a doctor, you get the maximum benefit the NHS provides, which is six months full pay and six months half pay. Okay. And so GPs, locum doctors, locum GPs, they may not get that. Okay. So do your own research, check your own contract. And some of people might not get any sick pay at all. Okay. So let's imagine you get ill and you can't work. Sick pay is outlined above, but then what? So then what is something called insurance? And there's a few ways that you can insure yourself against financial catastrophe caused by getting ill. So first way is something called income protection, which as the name hopefully would suggest, it pays you an amount of money if you cannot work. Okay, so it's designed to place your income effectively. Another thing that you've got is something called critical illness, which pays you an amount if you get one of a predefined list of critical illnesses, okay. And another category of insurance is life insurance, and that protects you against early death by paying your estate and your dependents an amount if you die, okay? So what protection you need varies for all of us because it depends on your individual circumstances. So I have a young family, good size outgoings, thanks to the cost of housing in this country, and I could not afford my bills if I couldn't work. And so I have income protection and life insurance. I know you have some as well, mate. I've got income protection. I don't have life insurance. Yeah, so that's... I've got no kids. Yeah, that's a great example. You've got no kids. The cats will be all right. Yeah, I'm sure they'll be fine. So, yeah, everyone, what you need varies on your circumstances, but also your stage of career and your life. So what you need to think about is, as I said, if the worst happens, could you afford your bills without your income? And if you can't, you need to think about getting insurance. And to get insurance, you would usually use a financial advisor. And by now, you've probably had someone masquerading as a financial advisor, but more realistically, a poorly trained salesperson who's come to your medical school and persuaded you that you need to buy their product right there and then without nearly giving you all the information that you need. And the information that you need is that there are two types of financial advisors. There are independent financial advisors, okay, and they can advise you on the whole market. An independent financial advisor searches the whole market to find the best policy for you so that you can get the best deal for you. Okay, so independent financial advisors, good. The next type of financial advisor is what's called restricted financial advisors. And restricted financial advisors, as the name suggests, search a limited section of the market. So if they have a policy that suits your circumstances that they can sell you, then fine. But if they don't, because they're restricted, they can't go and get a policy from elsewhere. They will just have to try and sell you what they have, even though there could be a better option for you on the open market. But they just can't get it because they're restricted. So... Yeah, unfortunately, the biggest firms targeting doctors, I mean, the medical market's dominated by restricted financial advisors. It's one of the reasons that we set our medics money because we passionately believe in the benefit of an independent, not a restricted advisor who specializes in doctors. And we've collected lots of them now on our platform and we've matched over 6,000 doctors to an independent financial advisor that matches their circumstances. Each advisor on our platform is independent and has been through our due diligence process, which includes an interview with me and Ed, which several of the advisors have said was worse than any professional exam they've ever had to do. So not that we're mean, we just ask all questions. Huh. Because it's like a personal recommendation. Medics Money started with us just helping our friends and friends of friends and people asking us who was good and who wasn't. And that is the ethos that drives it all today. We just got much more friends that we help these days, which is brilliant. So yeah, there's a few things you need to know about getting financial advice. In our opinion, independent financial advice is the gold standard. We only work with independent financial advisors and just do your due diligence. And if you want to be matched to an independent financial advisor that's matched to your unique circumstances, then have a look at our website and all the reviews on there as well are verified by GMC doctors. So I mentioned the GMC number earlier. So the reviews on there are from real doctors like you. So hopefully that helps. And I say we were so annoyed by the way that doctors were exposed to financial advice in inverted commas that we sell medics money. We built it with the best independent financial advisors out there and we match them to you. So if you need them, they're there for you. Tip 10 is basically to get the right advice, but when you need it, because as an FY1, for example, you're very unlikely at this stage to need, for example, an accountant. Yeah. Okay. Now, you know, talking about income protection, et cetera, that's a different thing in fairness, but investment advice or an accountant, you know, you're unlikely to need them at this stage. Okay. So some of you may have special circumstances, which will mean you do need to say an accountant. For example, if you're lucky enough to rent out a property, for example, you know, you may want an accountant to help 
prepare accounts for that and complete a tax return. But a lot of you won't be in that boat and you can do a lot yourself. You know, at Medics Money, we're really passionate about empowering doctors to do what they can themselves. And we've got a wealth of resources on our website to help you with this. You know, if you need your tax code changed or you want to claim those tax deductible expenses, you can do that without paying an accountant. And we've done our best to make our website as simple and as helpful as possible. So, you know, hopefully you can all feel able to do this. You know, you're all doctors, you're really, really clever people and you can do it, okay? Now, of course, down the line, things may change and you may get to the point where an accountant would be very beneficial. So maybe you're locum as an FY3 and want to get some help preparing locum accounts. Or maybe you get to the point where you want to consider setting up a company or a private practice and that may or may not be the right thing for you to do. So you may want to get some advice. Maybe you have to file a tax return and you simply don't have the time to do it yourself or you don't want to do it yourself. And of course, down the line, you know, you'll all experience the joy and fun of pension taxation and the problems with the pension. So you know, you, you'll probably want an accountant or an advisor for those things, okay? And for all those reasons and more, you know, you want to find a good accountant who understands doctors, who should save you more money than you spend on them, and to give you the right advice. And if you ever do want an accountant, we have a number of specialist medical accountants who will be very, very happy to help, and you can find via our website. But as I say, just, you know, get the help when you need it, okay? Not. I think that's a really good summary, and just because you don't need them in all circumstances, and you probably won't need one right now. Yeah, I think I tried to think about it a bit like triage. So as GPs, we try to triage our patients. And if our patients can help themselves by seeing a pharmacist or even doing something themselves, then we encourage them to do that. But we also have the safety net that if they need our help, they have any questions or they're worried about something or their situation is more complex, then of course they come to see us. So hopefully as an F1, as Ed said, if your circumstances are just normal, then our tax code guide our payslip guide, our tax rebate guide, and this podcast will help you. And down the line, if you do need an accountant, we can help you. I think as an F1, in terms of financial advisor, you know, you should consider the income protection that I just mentioned. And of course, I've just explained that you need an independent expert to help you. But, you know, other than that, there's so much more that you can do just by watching your spending. Don't spend £139,000 on lunch at the hospital, etc. So I really hope that was helpful. Mate, that was a bit of a mammoth episode in the end. I hope it wasn't too long, but there's so much to do and we've really just skimmed the surface there. But give me your parting wisdom, mate. One main thing that you would say. Okay, my one sort of top tip, I guess, from all that, I know it sounds, again, a bit simple, but just keep any documents you get, honestly, any payslips, P45s, P60s, keep them somewhere safe and definitely your total reward statement. Keep them somewhere safe because one day you're going to thank yourself for keeping them safe, okay? Definitely. And I think we have some of the best experts in the business on medics money, sometimes talking about really complicated things, but always they come back to their one top tip is just keep the paperwork because that is really, really important. I really struggle to give one tip, as you might have noticed by the length of this podcast, but my one tip would be just download the ebook, medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash ebook. Don't panic, but do act, you know, do do something, do start to learn about your finances, because the earlier you start, the better off you're going to be. So yeah, hope that was useful. This podcast has grown from something tiny last time we did this episode to something massive now. We love getting your feedback, your reviews and ratings on iTunes and Spotify really help for other doctors to find us. And the main thing you can do is if you found this useful, just tell your colleagues about this. You're all in this together. And by working together as a team, you're going to have an amazing career as a doctor, an amazing F1. It's going to be really hard. But if you just work together as a team and tell your colleagues about this podcast, and hopefully you can have a nice F1 and pay less tax and make better financial decisions. Brilliant. Look forward to catching you up on the next podcast real soon. Thanks, guys. Take care.